from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, May 17th. Today, the latest from the bombings in Gaza and protests in the West Bank, and what the White House is doing about it. Painful is a term that a lot of people use to describe what is unfolding. Miriam Berger covers the Middle East for The Post. It's also for some people been a time of some change and some hope. Shelling continues deep into the Gaza night as jet planes from the Israeli Defense Forces target the city. We've had a war between Israel and Hamas based on the Gaza Strip breakout. At the same time, you've had mass protests amongst um, Palestinian citizens of Israel and also Palestinians in the West Bank. And you've also had this wave of communal violence within Israel between Arab and Jewish citizens. So there's just a lot happening. So at this point on Monday, how many people have died so far in this conflict? The number could have changed in the last 10 minutes since I looked away from the news. But we have nearly 200 dead um, on the Gazan side, Palestinians in Gaza. We have 10 people inside Israel killed. And just since Friday, we have 15 Palestinians who've been killed in the West Bank. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of different fronts of, of violence happening. Um, so you have Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. You then have Hamas rockets into Israel. You then have violence between Israeli citizens and Palestinian citizens inside Israel and from Israeli settlers uh, roaming through different towns. And then you have also, you know, tensions and clashes between Palestinians in the West Bank and uh, Israeli soldiers and Israeli settlers. Can you paint a picture of, of what it is like in Gaza right now and what the experiences have been of Palestinians that you've talked to who are there? I mean, it's just terrifying. There's just bombardment and bombardment and bombardment. You have nowhere to go, nowhere safe. There's these big towers that have sort of generally been seen as, you know, safer, somewhat safer places to live, be it, you know, a building that houses the Associated Press or Al Jazeera, and they're being targeted. And so um, it's just really difficult. I mean, no one can, uh, no one has any safe space. My name is Malak Matar. I'm currently in this Gaza Strip. I, I just feel that my day is paralyzed. Uh, my sleep is paralyzed. I haven't been able to sleep for like the, like the past six days. It's been very difficult to really get to sleep and to have this comfort because the bombings didn't stop. It really get concentrated at the time where people getting to sleep, like at night, at early in the morning. Um, so the situation, I am a survivor of three previous wars uh, in 2008 and 2012 and 2014, um, and I'm only 21. So I could say that these days have been most the most intense uh, since the beginning. And, you know, this is, Gazans are very used to war, they're very used to airstrikes, but, 
you know, each time it just, it's just harder and harder for people to handle, of course. And so, you know, there's very little fuel, there's very little electricity, there's very little access to internet, all of this on top of COVID where the economy was already really suffering. It's people running for their lives, not having shelters, not having a safe place, but it's It's the concept of running, just like you run for your life, you run from death, but death is everywhere. Unfortunately, there is no safe place. And unfortunately, this war is clearly targeting the residents of Gaza, clearly targeting the innocent people, because we're speaking about over 100 people in just a few days, which is massive. And there's no foreigners there. So there's no international media there. The border is closed. So it's also very difficult to access information. And the burden is of documenting what is happening is falling just totally on Palestinian journalists in Gaza. You know, so at the same time that they're worrying about where that bomb, you know, where that airstrike maybe just hit, it was it their family, was it their friends, they also have to go report on it. So it's just really, really stressful. Um, you know, people are hunkered down, but or they move to someplace new, hoping that that's safer, but never really knowing. You mentioned that that some of these attacks have targeted a media building. Can you talk more about what happened in that incident? So the owner of the building in Gaza City receives a call. He's told, you have to get everyone out in the next hour. We're going to strike it. Many of the journalists who were working there were out and about doing the job. And, you know, Associated Press had been there for 15 years. Al Jazeera had been there for 11 years. That building meant so much to a lot of people. It was one of the safest places in the city or in Gaza in general. And it was a home for many people at the same time. So the owner was asking just for 10 more minutes um, so that those who weren't around would be able to retrieve, you know, last minute their, their, their equipment. You know, a lot of this is very expensive. It's hard to get into Gaza. The soldier that they were talking to rejected that. And then there were three drone strikes. And then there were three airstrikes. And in a matter of eight minutes, the building went down. It was a 12-story building. It was one of the centers of media in Gaza. And as the Associated Press said, it is now even harder to uh, report and get access to information and know what's happening in Gaza now that that building is gone. And do we know why Israel targeted that building? So Israel said that there was a, you know, Hamas militant base inside the building. The Associated Press, uh, among others, has requested an independent investigation They've also asked to see the evidence. Israel has says that they can't uh, provide the evidence for security reasons. You know, journalists who worked there for 15 years say they've never seen any militants there and have rejected those accusations. Wow. And then we're seeing these mass protests in Israel. Can you talk through what those look like, what people are calling for and, and who is participating in those protests? When I said that there's some hopeful moments going on right now, this is the sort of place in which you have this new upsurge and uprising amongst uh, Palestinian uh, citizens inside Israel. And people do describe this as, as a somewhat hopeful, uncertain moment. 
the backstory, there's a lot of backstory, <laughs> but we'll start with just a, a very short backstory. Palestinians were already mobilizing around uh, Al-Aqsa and Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem. And Monday night, you know, after a very tense day in Jerusalem, after Hamas fired uh, some rockets around Jerusalem and Israel responded with airstrikes and the war kicked off, Palestinian citizens of Israel in, in cities across uh, the country took to the streets in protests. And in one of those protests in a uh, city called Lud, which is in the middle sort of central Israel, and it's a, a historically sort of, um, quote unquote, mixed city between Jews and Arabs, a man named Musa Hasuna, 32-year-old, uh, was shot and killed. Um, you know, I, I spoke with his family yesterday, and uh, his wife said that he has, was just on his way home, um, that he had, they had been out um, at the mall shopping for clothes as a family, because um, it was, you know, uh, Eid and Ramadan, the end of Ramadan. And um, then when they were getting back, they saw that there was, you know, stuff happening in the streets. She then went home, you know, take care, put the kids to bed. He stayed and then, you know, he called and said, oh, I'm heading home. He was shot by, um, you know, what their family says were Israeli right-wing extremists, perhaps settlers. We don't really know yet specifics on who they are. And their three people have been uh, arrested. And this, the next day, his uh, funeral sort of kicked off a whole other round of, of protests as well. Um, and at these protests, you know, people are saying, we're sick of this. We're sick of being second-class citizens. We're sick of fearing that we're going to be displaced from our homes inside Israel. We're sick of feeling that the police don't care about us and don't don't you know help us. We're sick of the political situation here. Um, and there was a lot of just this sort of upsurge of anger and frustration and organizing. And, and, and how is the Israeli government responding to both the protests themselves, the calls that are being made at the protests for more substantive change, but also the violence that has been resulting of, of people essentially like attacking, uh, attacking their neighbors, attacking members of their community? Uh, yeah. You know, if you ask people, they're not they'd say they're not responding so well. Politicians, key among them, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, have all come out and called for an end to the violence that we've been seeing in the communal and uh, you know, sectarian unrest. So on Wednesday night, uh, you had just um, this flurry of really terrifying incidents happening just across the country. An Arab man was essentially lynched on video uh, in Bat Yam, which is a city near Tel Aviv. You had another case of, of a Jewish Israeli man in Akko beat up and hospitalized. In Haifa, people were afraid to leave their homes because, um, you know, there were roaming, you know, gangs essentially yelling death to Arabs. Uh, it was just a really terrifying night. I was in Lud then, where you had this standoff between, they called a state of emergency there because after two nights of protests over uh, the killing of Musa Hasuna, and Gaza and Sheikh Jarrah and everything else, um, they they issued a state of emergency, and so you had border police, which is 
usually border police are patrolling in East Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem, the occupied West Bank. They're not, um, you know, usually in the rest of the country. But you, so they deployed them um, and called this state of emergency. It was the first state of emergency in a you know Palestinian community inside Israel since 1966, when they sort of ended this state of emergency that had been imposed on many Arab communities after Israel's founding. Uh, you had this really toxic mix of basically busloads of um, youth from, you know, uh, large, many of them from West Bank settlements. When I asked them where they came from, they wouldn't tell me. And they were just roaming. They had a little protest and they were just roaming around. The police were nowhere to be seen. And so our the residents, the, our residents of Lod set up their own patrols. Everyone was just so on edge um, and there were lots of clashes, people injured, people arrested. Um, and, you know, then after that night, Netanyahu and many others came out and said, enough with the violence, we can't do this. And people were sort of like, mm, well, you've kind of incited your know, helps to in people have accused him of inciting to violence before or uh, really uh, sowing divisions before. And so there's this also this feeling that, you know, Israeli politicians who have benefited um, from the growing sort of, you know, divides between Israelis and Palestinians and the extremism within the sort of political spectrum that they are, you know, those sort of was empty words of them coming and speaking out and saying, you know, enough of the violence. So, you know, Netanyahu has aligned himself with uh, a very extreme right party uh, that calls itself Jewish power. And you, know, the leader of that party and uh, his sort of associates have been involved in a lot of the clashes that, and confrontations in Jerusalem around uh, Damascus Gate and around Sheikh Shirah. So, you know, it's all connected in this kind of very complicated web. But um, so you, you go from from protests in which you have this sort of unprecedented unity amongst Palestinians to, you know, maybe in the same night, unprecedented communal violence also breaking out. Um, and that's really volatile and confusing. And we don't know where that's going. Miriam Berger covers the Middle East for The Post. The story was produced by Lena Mohammed. In the Gaza Strip today, we are uh, now a week in to an Israeli air assault, which was prompted by the firing of rockets outward from the Gaza Strip into Israel. There was a lot of unrest in Israel proper, particularly in Jerusalem, that had preceded that. But the active conflict, which some people are starting to call a war, uh, is now entering its second week as of today. Anne Guerin covers foreign policy and national security for The Post. She has been following the White House's response to this latest outbreak of violence in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. President Biden has been more engaged in this conflict directly, personally, 
than in any other foreign policy crisis or development of his presidency so far. I think it really counts as the largest single crisis for a number of reasons, starting with the longstanding U.S. relationship and alliance uh, with Israel and traditional role as a, as a go-between with, with the Palestinians. This is something that heretofore the Biden administration has not spent much time or energy on at all. It's not where they want their main foreign policy focus to be. But as often happens with things in the Middle East, uh, they're kind of getting uh, dragged into the middle of it. Uh, He, the president, has had two conversations uh, with the Israeli prime minister. He's had two conversations with the titular head of the Palestinians in the West Bank. Because the U.S. does not talk directly to Hamas, the militant group in the Gaza Strip, they've had no direct contact, nor will they. But you're starting to see the the diplomatic efforts, in part led by the U.S., to go through third parties, through Egypt, uh, through Jordan, to talk to the Hamas militants in hopes of of getting a ceasefire here uh, fairly soon. So what is Biden actually saying in these phone calls, both with Israeli officials and also with Palestinian officials? Like, what is he trying to achieve? The overall message from the president so far has been to appeal for calm and to try to put the U.S. in as much of a position as an honest broker as they can do in pretty short and vaguely worded readouts released to us. What I have heard separately from that, from people on numerous sides of this who are part of this diplomatic effort is that the president and those speaking for him, the secretary of state, and now there's a State Department envoy there on the ground in Israel, uh, they are attempting to tell the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, that first of all, the United States 100% signs up to the traditional U.S. position that Israel has a right to defend itself. Um, My expectation and hope is that this will be closing down sooner than later. But uh, Israel has a right to defend itself when you have thousands of rockets flying into your territory. But uh, And then the second beat of the message is, but that response must be proportional. It must take into account uh, civilian casualties. It must try to minimize civilian casualties. And the overall goal must be to get to calm, to get to stasis, to get to, although they haven't used the word ceasefire in these readouts, that's the subtext, get to a point where, as in past conflicts, uh, there is a negotiated ceasefire and things kind of go back to the pre-conflict, pre-instant conflict uh, normal. So how does that position square with how the rest of the Democratic Party is looking at this? The president's position, as expressed in these readouts and the, and the few uh, very brief comments that he has made, are of a piece with his own views from years and years as a senior Democratic foreign policy voice. They represent the traditional U.S., particularly the traditional Democratic Party politician view that is strongly pro-Israel. And while it is not anti-Palestinian, those things do not need to be binary, the support for Israel is first and tens in that view, which again has held sway in the main for the last 30 years, 
to assume that Israel is acting with justification and will ultimately do the right thing. But it seems like that position is getting more complicated among Democrats, that there are a lot of Democrats that don't feel that Israel is an honest broker here. Yeah, I mean, it's a view that it sounds increasingly out of time and out of tune with where the Democratic Party is going. There has for quite a long time uh, within the Democratic ranks been a very skeptical view and even trending to an anti-Israel view of what Israel is doing and an assumption that is the opposite of Biden's, which is that an assumption going in uh, that Israel is not going to act in good faith. Uh, That has been uh, the view for a long time of people like Bernie Sanders. Uh, I think that uh, overwhelmingly uh, the United States time and time again has looked aside when Israel has done some bad things. Uh, I think, for example, that the growth of settlements in Palestinian territory uh, is not acceptable to me and not conducive uh, to the peace process. That you know, Israel would, would take advantage of these situations and try to basically get as, as much out of, of these individual conflicts as they could in terms of, of mowing down Hamas militant resistance as opposed to taking the opposite military view, which is you do as little as possible in order to achieve your aim. And mm-hmm. that, you know, we're seeing that play out right now, where the criticism of, of, of Israel is that they are doing the most that they can get away with rather than the least possible to get the job done. So Biden right now is trying to balance this kind of diverging view on Israel within the Democratic Party. But what pressures is he also facing from Republicans right now? I think the the largest pressure is actually internal, really a, a, a coalition of younger, more progressive Democrats. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the best known of them, is really putting a, a great deal of rhetorical pressure on the president. This is our business because we are playing a role in it. And the United States must acknowledge its role in the injustice and human rights violations of Palestinians. This is not about both sides. This is about an imbalance of power. But there is also some pressure from Republicans. I mean, uh, and it it is interestingly bipartisan. Uh, Yesterday, we had the first bipartisan senatorial letter to the president, open letter, calling on him and his administration to do more to try to bring this conflict to an end and do more specifically to send a message to Israel that it needs to modulate its response. And that was interesting. Uh, You are also getting a measure of pressure from Republicans on the opposite side of that, which is to say that there is pressure on the administration to do more to support Israel, full stop. And that also bleeds over into Republican criticism of the uh, return to negotiations with Iran, Israel's main enemy. And so there's a whole lot swirling around here that partly, which represent traditional views among the parties, and and partly, and I think 
you know, most interestingly and different in this conflict versus past ones, you're seeing a, a now this split in the Democratic Party, which was not as large or as vocal before and really poses a, a significant intra-party challenge to the president. And what about internationally? Like, how is Biden weighing both his own larger foreign policy goals and also the pressure that other leaders internationally are putting on him? We have not seen the kind of international criticism slash pressure of the United States to the same degree as we have in the most recent past conflicts in 2014 and 2012. Uh, We had uh, similar wars. They were ultimately called in Gaza. I suspect that's what this one will ultimately be called as well. And as those conflicts dragged on into into weeks, there was a lot of international uh, pressure uh, from the UN, from European allies, certainly from some other Arab allies and partners uh, for the United States to rein in Israel. That's uh, very often the the phrase that's used uh, to use the unique leverage and position of the United States to intervene and say to Israel, that's enough. We, the United States, will not publicly back and support you if you go further. So don't. That is the ultimate pressure that the United States can wield. So the pressure is external and rhetorical, but the leverage is significant. We are starting to hear a little bit of that, though. I think you heard some of that from the U.N. Secretary General in this extraordinary public meeting that was held yesterday. The U.N. Security Council took no action, but the fact that they held it and it went on for a very long time. And Antonio Gutierrez, the uh, U.N. Secretary General, came about as close as he's going to come in that kind of a setting uh, to saying, this is it. Time for the United States to do more. Fighting must stop. It must stop immediately. Rockets and mortars on one side, the aerial and artillery bombardments on the other must stop. I appeal to all parties to heed this call. The intervention given by the U.S.-U.N. ambassador uh, was very measured and tempered and did not go anywhere near as far in criticizing Israel or suggesting that the U.S. was about to to come down hard on Israel uh, as many participating in that meeting wanted. I suspect that if this goes on much longer into this week, that pressure will start to build, including from European allies who've mostly been quiet so far. And do you think the White House is sensitive to those criticisms that they're not doing enough, especially as it seems like there is increasingly this outcry about the disproportionate casualties between Israelis and Palestinians right now. And the sense that, okay, both sides are doing wrong might be not the right tack considering how many Palestinians have died compared to how many Israelis. Yes, of course. I mean, and it's really stark in this conflict. And I think you have on, on top of that this very strong U.S. sensitivity and distaste for the Israeli airstrike on building housing journalistic offices, uh, the Associated Press and Al Jazeera most notably over the weekend. It is not for nothing that the U.S. readout of Biden's next conversation with Netanyahu included a line that Biden had stressed to the Israeli prime minister the importance of allowing journalists to do their work. Uh, That is in the measured kind of language of of these readouts, uh, you could read a lot into that, right? (laughs) Saying Hmm. that was a line crossed and we know about it. We care about it. We're paying attention. What is Biden's relationship with Prime Minister Netanyahu? 
oh, in a word, complicated. Uh, Very long. They have known one another for 40 years. I am not sure, although they do, they, they publicly call one another friend. I am not sure that privately either one would use that term. Maybe they would. I, I, I don't know. Um, they currently have a very politically difficult relationship because of, of Netanyahu's political troubles at home. He is under indictment and he is also trying to form a government. He lost his first attempt to do that. Uh, so he's sort of a he's a man without a without a government right now. And I think some people have pointed that out, considering the fact that his actions are essentially contributing to a war while he's at the same time trying to retain political control over this country. Right. And the cynical view of that is that he's taking advantage of this situation to consolidate nationalist rally the troops kind of uh, spirit, uh, which has worked for him in the past. He is a right of center politician. He's out of step with a lot of, of modern Israeli politics, but he survives and succeeds in large part by being able to put together a semi-nationalist coalition of smaller parties. And this is exactly the kind of conditions in which that may succeed. So what do you think it would ultimately take for the U.S.'s relationship with Israel to change in a more substantive way? I think if by that you mean what would it take for the United States to really be the heavy and to say to Israel, hey, look, we know the game. We know exactly what you're up to here and it's we're not going to stand for it. I don't know the answer to that exactly, but I think it would probably take either different leadership in the White House or some really egregious action on the part of Israel that causes this White House to shift. I think what you are seeing from from Biden and from Secretary of State Blinken is, for them, pretty strong language and pretty consistent pressure. And they're letting people know, like letting reporters know, that there's a fair amount going on behind the scenes that we're not seeing directly. And that Biden and Blinken do know what's up, that they, they do understand what Netanyahu's motivations may be here, and that their patience is not infinite. As far as a real paradigm shift to say that the U.S. would no longer reflexively back Israel and would instead reflexively back the position that, that Palestinians are a unjustly occupied people and that that occupation must stop immediately, which is very often the view you hear in Europe. We're not there and we're not going to be there, I think, politically in this country unless AOC becomes president. Anne Guerin covers the White House for The Post. The story was produced by Rennie Spronofsky. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svernovsky. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 